Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're in uh, part 3 of this series we started uh, a couple weeks back called That's Just Great. You'll recall in part one, we talked about our great creator. We were in Psalm 33. Last week, we talked about our great purpose in Isaiah 43. Today, we're discussing our great problem in Romans chapter 3. Let me ask you this. If you had the ability to fix any one problem, what would it be? Maybe you would fix our federal government, our political system. Uh, Maybe you would eliminate war or hunger or Alzheimer's or or, or cancer, human trafficking, the drug problem, crime, this heat wave. We're talking about problems, some things that desperately need fixing because they fail to live up to their intended purpose. Take, for example, the city of Vancouver, British Columbia. They purchased their first motorized ambulance in 1909 at a whopping sum of $4,000. Now, that's actually close to $100,000 in in today's uh, money standard. But when the crew took the ambulance out for its first test run, they hit a pedestrian (laughs) and killed him. And so, even though it was meant to save lives, this expensive purchase ended up transporting its first passenger to the morgue instead of the hospital. You see, church, God created us for a specific purpose, to live in a joyous relationship with Him and to bring glory to His name. We talked about that last week. But like that ambulance, Humankind really hasn't lived up to its creative purpose. And the Bible shows us where the problem really lies. It's really in the human heart. And that leads us to the big idea behind today's study, that without Christ, we are condemned forever. Now, thankfully, the Bible is very clear uh, on the answer to that great problem. And we're going to get to that uh, in a little while. First, let me give you some background. Okay, so near the end of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. Now, Paul had not yet been to Rome, so he was not involved in actually the actual starting of the church there. But he intended to visit Rome on his way to uh, preaching in Spain. And so this book introduced him to the Christians in Rome, uh, spelled out his theology to them in preparation for his visit. And we actually pick up Paul's letter in chapter 3, where we're actually going to see three important foundational truths about the human condition. Truth number one, we all have sinned. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, in the first two chapters of the book of Romans, Paul had identified those people who had sinned and were under God's wrath. But let's back up for a sec. What is sin? Well, a very basic definition is this, that sin is an intentional and deliberate rebellion against God's ways and his word. And who are those people that Paul identified? Well, he included some of the people that we might expect, you know, very rebellious people, uh, blatant sinners. But he also included some people that we might not expect, you know, people that, you know, were probably considered good, even religious people. So who is Paul specifically addressing here? Well, Paul is writing to Jewish Christians. And for centuries, you recall that the, the Jewish people had enjoyed special privileges as a result of being God's chosen people. But in Romans, Paul says that despite these privileges, they were still guilty of sin. Now, remember, Paul was a Jew himself, which is why he asked, are we any better off? Well, better off than whom? Well, better off than all of the rest of humanity. So a couple of basic thoughts or basic statements really jump out at us from these first few verses. Uh, some things that Paul is telling us. First of all, Paul is saying that all means all. Are we better off? Well, Paul's not at all answer makes it clear that the universal sinfulness of humanity trumps any kind of temporary advantage that the Jews had over anybody else. And in verse 9, Paul says that those who've sinned include both Jews and Greeks. Now that phrase, you know, it doesn't mean that he's referring just to Jewish people and Grecian people. He's saying Jews and everybody else. Uh, some of your translations instead of Greeks, it'll say Gentiles. So Jews and everybody else. That's his way of saying all people are under sin. And all means all. But then there's another statement that, that comes through in the text. None means none. Look at verse 10. There is no one righteous, he says, not even one. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul says that sin runs rampant because humanity as a whole loves uh, sin and despises righteousness. Now, a lot of people, we, we, we want to we blame God for the state that the world is in today. But if you want to be really honest, the blame is ours. Because we've all turned away from God at some point in our life to seek sinful pleasure for ourselves. And you know what Paul's talking about here? This was not some, uh, some new phenomenon that was new to the human condition there in the first century. In fact, Paul's actually quoting the Old Testament when he says, There is none righteous. No, not one and Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Some of your English translations will say filthy rags. Now, we like to think that we can clean ourselves up, right? Yeah, but no one truly can. 
In his book, Listening to the Voice of God, Pastor Roger Barrier wrote, When I left for college, my mother, who had always done my laundry, made a canvas duffel bag for me. Put your dirty clothes in this every night, and at the end of the week, wash them at the laundromat. Seven days later, I took my dirty clothes to the laundromat. Now, to save time, I threw the duffel bag in the washer, put in some laundry powder, inserted the proper change, and turned on the machine. Moments later, a loud thump, 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 thump echoed throughout the laundromat. A pretty co-ed approached me with a grin. I watched you load the washer. I think the clothes would get cleaner if you actually took them out of the bag. <laughs> you see, our own righteousness, the good deeds that we try to dress ourselves up with, man, those are like filthy rags. Rags in a duffel bag. There's no way for us to cleanse ourselves. Because in short, we, we've all broken the commandments of God. Now, when Paul says here that all have turned away from God and his plan for their lives, I'm wondering if he's really, in the back of his mind, if he's thinking of Isaiah 53, 6. It says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And then he says something almost shocking. He says, sinful humans have become worthless. Now, the Greek word that he uses there, it's usually translated as worthless, useless, gone bad, kind of like milk that's turned sour. But in this specific context, it more literally means a liability to society because of moral depravity. But you see, that's one of the consequences of our sinfulness. Paul ends verse 12 with the point that nobody does what is good. None. Now, by the world's definition of good, a lot of us would say, you know, there are some family members or friends or co-workers or neighbors that are basically good people. But if you use a divine definition of the word, nobody's good without Jesus. Now, you'll recall the story of the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10. He comes to Jesus. He calls Jesus good teacher. Remember what Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's Mark 10, 18. And of course, this is one of those great uh, wink, wink moments from Jesus because he's actually making a subtle reference to himself as God by saying that. But his point really is this, nobody's good. Sin is universal. None means none and all means all. We all have sin. Now, what evidence points to that universal problem? <sighs> Look at the newspaper. Watch the evening news. I mean, all we seem to see and hear about is lying, cheating, stealing, murder, mayhem. And if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we don't really need to look any farther than our own thoughts and attitudes and, and actions and conversations to find evidence of sin. Because sinning comes naturally. I mean, nobody has to teach us how. My oldest son, who's 28 now, I remember when he was still a toddler, hadn't quite finished his potty training. One day he comes toddling through the house with a tremendous odor 
following him everywhere he went. I mean, the evidence invading my nostrils drew me to an inevitable conclusion. I said, Ryan, did you poo-poo? No. <laughs> now, who taught that kid how to lie? Nobody. It came naturally because sin comes naturally. He was born with the nature to sin like we all are from an early age. We find evidence of lying and defiance and lack of self-control and anger and coveting and selfishness. And our tendency towards those things comes naturally because sin comes naturally. Now, we're awful quick to see this in our own culture, in the world around us, but not so quick to see it in ourselves, okay? Because some of us suffer from a, uh, a chronic case of plank eye. Uh, see Matthew chapter 7 for that, but, you know, hey, never mind this plank in my eye. I, I need to take that speck from out of your eye. But see, if we're really honest with ourselves... What attitudes and actions in our lives demonstrate this reality that we're all sinners? We can make such a long list. What about the things we look at online when nobody else is watching us? What about the frivolous priorities that we throw our time and money at instead of God? Or the way we allow ourselves to be angered by such trivial, petty things and the hurtful way we vent that anger towards other people. And the way we pridefully compare ourselves to other people. And the awful thoughts that we have about other people. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, All men have secret thoughts that would shame hell. So we saw in verses 9 through 12 that we've all sinned. And now as we jump to verses 19 and 20... We'll see the natural consequence of that sin. That, number two, we all are judged. We all are judged. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Okay, now a couple of things really stand out in verses 19 and 20. First of all, we see that judgment is from God's law. Now when Peter, I'm sorry, when Paul refers to law in this passage, what's he referring to? Because usually as Christians, when we're reading the Scripture, either Old or New Testament, when we see a reference to the law, we immediately go straight to those distinctively Jewish rules, like circumcision and, and keeping the Sabbath. Things that you're going to find in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But you see, in Romans chapter 2, Paul identified another kind of law, a law that's actually written on the human heart. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, he said, When Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse 
or even excuse them. So what is Paul saying? He's basically saying this. He's referring to our inborn ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Now here in chapter 3, Paul declares that the Jews were sinners by actually quoting these Old Testament texts. The interesting thing, though, is that none of these quotes are taken from any of the books of the law in the Old Testament. Those five books that we would call the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, none of those quotes that he's using are from the books of the law. So Paul apparently had... He used law in a more general sense of God's moral expectation for all humans. And unlike the Old Testament law, this is a law that every man, woman, and child is still subject to. The law that we're all judged by. But Paul says not only is judgment from God's law, but then we see something else in verse 20. We see that justification isn't from good works. Look at verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Okay, so what does justified mean? Well, in the original language, it's basically a legal term. It comes from a courtroom context. So Paul used it to mean that a guilty sinner had been declared righteous by God. So when I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, think about this. If Paul is thinking about an innate sense of right, wrong, good, and bad, how is the world's definition of good really different from God's? Oh, I think it's a lot different I mean, think of all the things that people will try to do to try to justify themselves in the eyes of God. Well, if I just do enough good deeds, or if I just go to church, or if I, if I help others, if I always speak kindly, or you've got the classic legalists, you know, guys like the, young, the rich young ruler that we referenced from Mark 10, who told Jesus, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. And so these are the people who are observing all the do's and the don'ts. <laughs> you know, the abstainers. I don't drink, smoke, chew, go with the girls that do. Those type people. <laughs> it's interesting, back in 1999, there was a study that was done, and re researchers found that there's at least three situations when we are not ourselves. Number one, the average person puts on airs when they walk into a lobby of a really fancy hotel. Number two, the average person stifles emotion to psych out the salesman when entering the new car showroom. And then number three, the average person in church tries to fake out Almighty God by being good all week long. See, the evidence that's stacked against our sin, it's overwhelming. We have no defense. You know, so-called moral people will argue, well, you know, I, I do good things. And religious people are going to add, well, I go to church. Yet no matter how moral or how religious we are, we all stand in judgment before a holy God. That's the bad news. I mean, guilt always leads to, to judgment. And when it comes to sin, the evidence has been 
presented, the evidence, the judge rather has, he's handed down his verdict. And no amount of good deeds can change that verdict. All humanity stands justly condemned before a holy God. We are all wrong. There was a guy, he was a supervisor of the sales staff at a department store. Got tired of his job, so he left that job. Joined the police force. Now, months later, a friend of his asked how he liked being a cop. Oh, fine. The pay's pretty good. Hours aren't so bad. But what I like most of all is that the customer was always wrong. <laughs> now, we like to think we're right. I mean, do, do people ever try to explain away God's judgment? I think if Paul's readers truly acknowledged that they were sinners, they would have realized that they're subject to God's judgment. They should have admitted the overwhelming evidence against them and kept their mouths shut instead of trying to launch a defense. See, as sinners, all people are under God's judgment. In fact, Jesus made that same point with Nicodemus. You remember the re religious ruler who came to him at night? That conversation they had in John chapter 3? He tells Nicodemus in verse 18 that anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So, we all have sinned. We are all judged. Here's the third great truth about the human condition. We all fall short. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does the glory of God mean here anyway? We see the, the word glory. We often think of God's radiance, a, a, a visual manifestation of his glory. But, but in this context, the glory of God is really kind of wrapped up in the, the totality of who God is and, and what he says and does. And when we take all of God's attributes and put them together, you know, things like his love and his justice and his holiness and his mercy and his goodness and faithfulness and all that stuff, we put all that together, we, we get a much clearer picture of his glory. Now, that glory is actually related to the divine presence that he originally had with humankind and the, the privilege of direct communion that Adam and Eve enjoyed with him in the garden, you know, before sin entered the world in, in Genesis chapter 3. And to be cut off from that fellowship with God is, is really, that's the great loss that's created by sin. So what does it mean then when it says that we have fallen short of God's glory? Well, much more than just being cut off from the intended fellowship we're supposed to have with God, you know, to say that we fall short of the glory of God, it means we fail to measure up to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, trying to match God's standard of righteousness, I mean, it's kind of like trying to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. Even the very best swimmers, you know, might do okay for a while, but they're all going to eventually drown. Now, here in the original Greek text, the primary meaning of the word sinned is to miss the mark. Uh, there's some great athletic metaphors. You can think of archery, missing the target. Or think of it this way. Think of your life as a championship basketball game. 
Time's about to expire, and to achieve everlasting uh, life with God and eternity, you have got to hit a three-pointer at the buzzer. Win and you're in. Miss, and you face an eternity of utter anguish and despair and separation from God in a place called hell. So channeling your inner Michael Jordan, you dribble up to the three-point line, you pull up, you launch yourself into the air, and exercising your best form, you release your most excellent jump shot. And it is a complete air ball. Not even close. The shot woefully misses the goal. Air ball. You see, church, sin stains our best efforts. And as sinners, we can never even come close to reaching God's standard of righteousness. Now, wait, wait a second, Eric, though. Isn't the gospel supposed to be good news? Yeah. And, and let's be honest, you know, Paul's message so far sounds a whole lot more like bad news than good news. I mean, he sounds like the doctor that calls you in for a consultation, and he tells you all of the deadly details of the, the serious illness you've been diagnosed with before saying, oh, by the way, there is a cure. Okay, so in light of the bad news in verse 23, where do we find the good news? Well, it's, it's funny, in a, in a very bizarre sort of way, the sin is, is good news. Now follow me here. Because with sin, there's a way out. Now, you can't actually repent of your action, you know, if it's just a, a case of confusion or psychological flaws that were inflicted by your parents. You're stuck with those. But you can repent of sin. So that's good news, because admitting sin and repenting of it are a doorway to hope and joy. They are the grounds for reconciled, joyful relationship with God. Yes, we all suffer from the same sickness. We're all sinners, and left unchecked, we'll experience God's judgment. But the best news is that there is a cure if we repent and receive the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. I mean, the word gospel literally means good news. That's the good news. See, thankfully, unlike that swimmer who's trying to swim across the Atlantic Ocean, God has not left us on our own to drown. We have hope. We have an answer. And really, in a way, that kind of brings us back to the, the big idea. Yes, without Christ, we are condemned forever. But with Christ, we are forever forgiven, saved. Which really is what we're going to talk more about in next week's message. All right, so now that we've been faced with the all and none aspects of mankind's sin, 
What are some things that we can do individually this week to respond to the reality that all people sin? Let me give you three action steps. The first one is admit. Admit your sin. Just confess it to God. And then ask God to reveal any areas of your sin in your life that have not been confessed or dealt with. Maybe things you weren't even aware of. Take a page from the psalmist book, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The psalmist said, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So confess those sins and do whatever's necessary to turn from those. You know, make, make plans to guard your heart. Develop a strategy to avoid temptation. Inundate your mind and heart with the Word of God. So admit. Admit your sin. Here's the second thing. Ask God. Ask God. As you're interceding for other people, as you're praying daily for people you know who also need to repent of sin, ask that the Holy Spirit would confront them with their sinfulness and their need to turn to Christ. So admit your sin, ask God, and here's the third one. Adore. Adore the Lord. Worship. Okay, not just what we do here at a scheduled time on Sunday mornings, which is vitally important, but we're talking about setting aside a personal time this week spent praising God and thanking Him for His offer of grace and forgiveness. Thank Him for the work of Christ in your own heart and life and in the lives of those that you love. Earlier in the message, we talked about how the city of Vancouver spent the equivalent of $100,000 in an effort to save lives. Let me tell you something, church. Christ paid an infinitely higher price to save those who had no hope of saving themselves, including you and me. See, he paid the penalty for sin in our place. And it's only through him that we're saved. It's not by our works. Imagine when your life passes. You're standing in, in front of the gates of heaven. God asks, why should I let you in? Most people are going to reply. In fact, I would estimate probably nine out of ten people would reply, well, because I'm a good person. Oh, but then we remember Romans 3.10. There is no one righteous, not even one. See, church, there's no amount of good deeds that can ever help us gain access into eternal life. Paul says it clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then he says in Titus 3, 5, that God saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. See, you can't earn it. You know, being active in your Sunday school class doesn't justify you before God. Growing up in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Can't inherit it. Can't get to heaven on mom and dad's coattails. But you see, that 
is what makes God's grace so amazing. That as it says in Romans 5, 8, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, they have nothing to do with what you can do. They have everything to do with what Christ did for you. All we have to do is repent, believe, and receive. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.